Well, good morning. We're continuing our series through the book of Exodus, and we are continuing our little mini-series through the Ten Commandments. If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 5, I'll be very brief in Exodus this morning. The verse in Exodus uh, is Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. And I'm going to spend most of our time this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus explains that commandment. Uh, He says very interesting things about that. Was that a bad idea for me to go to Matthew chapter 5? All of a sudden. Okay, we're on now. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. You sure it's okay? (laughs) Maybe we should just go back to Exodus 20. (laughs) In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uh, several times says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He says that six times in Matthew chapter 5. He does that with a couple of the Ten Commandments and then several other uh, Old Testament commands. And here we have the one where he handles murder. I'd like to read the first couple verses here, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I, Jesus, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're angry with someone this morning, this would be a good time to leave (laughs) because you're going to have to deal with that uh, in the next half hour or so. Now, again, Jesus does this to several uh, Old Testament commands six times. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, and here's what's going on. Jesus is not shredding the Old Testament. Oh, that was all kind of dumb because he wrote it. But what he's doing here is claiming ultimate authority to interpret all of the Old Testament. And he's also claiming to be the center of Bible interpretation. And the same thing works for us as Christians. It is as if we stand in Christ, as if Christ is this perspective or this spot. And that gives us the ability then to interpret the rest of the Bible. So some Christians think, well, I'm just going to read the New Testament. Because that's about Jesus and that kind of a thing. The Old Testament isn't as important. But all of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to hear these words of Christ and to realize that he is the ultimate interpreter, but he is also uh, the perspective from which we interpret all of the Bible. It's all about him. He is the Genesis 3 promise uh, that will come and crush the head of the serpent. He is the ark. He is the Passover lamb. He is the Leviticus 15 scapegoat. He is the day of atonement. It all points to him. It is all fulfilled in him, which is why our series is called The Gospel According to Exodus. We saw this same thing a couple of weeks ago uh, when, when I was preaching on the subject of Sabbath. The actual Sabbath law is no longer binding. If you happen to be picking up sticks on a Saturday, uh, you will not be stoned by your church leaders that is no longer a binding law however the basis the theological basis behind the sabbath is still in authority over us and it has to do with the exodus deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 15 you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of egypt and the lord your god brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm therefore the lord your god commanded you to keep the sabbath day 
So the rationale behind the Sabbath is Exodus. We understand the Sabbath by understanding Exodus. And the Exodus is all about God freeing his people from slavery to a promised land of rest, which is exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He saved us from slavery to sin and death. We understand the Exodus. We understand the Sabbath and everything else in the Old Testament by understanding it through Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 1, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Well, the true form, the capital F form is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate interpreter and he is the interpretive perspective from which we understand this entire book. And he does the same thing with this law against murder. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, and Christ has the right to do this. You'll hear different pastors disagree on certain areas of theology. Some of them think you should baptize this way. Others think you should baptize another way. Different uh, Christian theologians disagree on how God's sovereignty interacts with human choices and so on. And you'll have all kinds of debate. But when Jesus enters a debate and he says, I say to you, it's authoritative. It is not an opinion. And here he is interpreting his own commandment. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so Christ has this way. And we've seen this as we've gone through the commandments. Christ has this way of intensifying the teaching of the Old Testament by reaching right into our hearts. Murder is sin, but he's interested in a lot more than homicide. He's interested in anger. He's interested in where the homicide comes from. Christians, we Christians live in a redeemed community where love is supposed to conquer death. Luke 6, 27 says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. And there are lots of reasons that we struggle with this. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Unfortunately, we've had a very close relationship between politics and evangelicalism in our country. And so a lot of times Christians will listen to talk radio or watch conversations happening on the television coming from certain political perspectives and think that that is a Christian perspective. And yet the attitude is the opposite of what we see here in Christ. Whatever your political position may be, we are told to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now we do this kind of countercultural, alternate culture behavior. We do this kind of love because we are interpreting our lives and interpreting all of the Bible and every situation through Christ. John 13, 34 says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So our behavior toward each other, our situations, our relational scenarios are interpreted through this perspective of Jesus Christ. We look at the scenario through Christ in Christ for the glory of Christ, and we love each other just as Christ has loved us. You see, the love of Christ is the antidote to murder and to anger and to insults, 
And it's comprehensive. It's a comprehensive sort of love. It isn't just loving nice people during the good times when we're well fed and surrounded by a sunset and perfect temperature and all of that. Romans chapter 5 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so as Christians, we love each other as Christ, not just in the good times, not just when we agree on stuff and the relationship is easy, which means it's new. (laughs) All right. It's early in the relationship. Right. But we love each other as Christ. And when I started thinking about how to preach this commandment, uh, I actually asked Libby, I was like, what am I going to say about murder? Like, this is about a two minute sermon, right? Don't murder each other. We'll see you next week. (laughs) And she reminded me that uh, Christ reinterprets this and intensifies it and explains it during the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But here I am, you know, thinking, okay, we're in Exodus chapter 20 and I've got four words in English. It's two in Hebrew. Uh, (laughs) And this is my sermon today. Do not murder. Uh, But when you start reading the Old Testament through Christ, it comes alive in a way that is uh, almost wild. Four little words can flower into something kind of amazing because this isn't just about murder. It's the place where murder comes from. The implications reach our innermost parts. This is not about behavior, but Jesus drives his word into very private, very hidden places inside us. He wants to redeem feelings. He wants to redeem personalities. Now, in our culture, we think we have sort of an entitlement to our personality. Well, just that's just how I am. I'm type A, so I just run over people. That's how God made me. But you know that God is coming back to creating new heavens and a new earth. He's even redeeming rocks and trees. And if he's doing that, uh, then he's certainly about the redemption of all kinds of things that seem permanent. He wants to redeem personalities. He wants to redeem feelings. The Bible often talks about our inward parts. Here is Job talking about his inward parts. In Job chapter 30, Job says, My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. My lyre, the instrument, my lyre is turned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. So here's Job, and that whole chapter is like that. It's kind of a bummer chapter. His inward parts are in turmoil. And, you know, the word of God touches those inward parts. And why? Why does the Bible touch those inward parts? Why does the word of Christ, why does all of the Bible interpreted through the uh, Christological center touch those inward parts. It, it's because we see here in Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. No other book is, we don't use personal pronouns to describe any other book. This is a hymn This is a hymn. It's not an it. 
No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Job's inward parts were in turmoil, and yet the word of God drives exactly to that inward part in order to bring redemption. Second Corinthians 4.16, though our inner self, no, I'm sorry, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's a Christian perspective on the inner parts. Though my body is totally falling apart here, my inner self is being renewed day by day. And Paul prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3.16 that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He doesn't just say that you would not commit homicide against each other, that you would go through certain religious rituals with some kind of consistency. No, what he's saying is he's reaching into the inner parts and asking God to bring redemption there. I think every human being can relate to Job. Probably all of you in a wide range of ages can relate to Job, but the longer that you live, the more you can relate. I go about darkened, said Job. That's a common human experience, and this is exactly where Jesus makes a difference. The word of Christ pierces right through painful parts in order to make real inward change possible. My friend Tim, many of you know him, he had to have a bone marrow transplant, and part of that process included this huge needle that had to be jammed through his hip bone. They actually had to make a little hole and break through his hip bone. Very painful, and that is what piercing does. And it may not be pleasant, but we need a soul marrow transplant because we are sinners until we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's about a gentle and quiet spirit. Jesus helps us to say these words of King David in Psalm 131. We read this together for the gathering in this week where David said, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. So in the case of do not murder, we interpret this verse through Christ, in Christ, with Christ as our interpretive center. He helps us to see the real problem with this murder command. It is not just that we have a tendency to kill each other, but what he says is anyone who is angry with his brother. He says, whoever insults his brother, and many of your translations uh, go for the literal translation, whoever says raka. And raka means empty, which basically means empty head. It's a colloquialism. Whoever says to his brother empty head or, you know, numbskull or idiot or whatever it may be that is popular today. Unfortunately, our Bibles get dated really quickly. And so we think, well, I've never said raka to my friend, so this doesn't apply to me. But we have our own favorite ways of insulting each other. Jesus is putting his finger on the inward parts. D.A. Carson said it very simply, among Christians, anger is to be eliminated. We find all kinds of excuses for our anger. But let's interpret this through Christ. Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, How do we respond to injustice? How do you respond to injustice? Do you respond like Christ who said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? 
How do you respond to betrayal? Do you respond to betrayal as Christ sitting there having a meal with Judas? Or do you respond as as Joseph did with his brothers when they came to him, the dudes that tried to kill him? This is what it means to interpret through Christ. What comes out of your mouth when someone says something hurtful? Do you speak as Christ? First Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, <laughs> Jesus is getting at the causal core. He's getting at that engine where our desire comes from. When Christ talked about do not murder, he showed us where murder comes from. And of course, he condemns homicide, but he's he's focused on the cause of homicide because that's what's really interesting. And that's where redemption can get really, really God glorifying. And this has much more to do with things like unhappiness and racism and abuse of power. Jesus wants to renew us in the inward parts. So he explains a little bit of what he means here. He goes on in Matthew 5, verse 23. He says, So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. I think you can probably relate with this comment here that it would be a lot easier to write a check to fix a problem than to actually deal with the problem. It'd be a lot easier to make a very generous donation to the church than to actually get along with the people at the church. (laughs) I just read a biography of Johnny Carson and he was frequently caught philandering, frequently caught philandering, and he would try to appease his wives with expensive jewelry and vacations, um, which was not an effective uh, way to handle marriage. He blew through four wives, and he died alone. Very rich, but alone. Because relationships don't need money. Relationships need a huge amount of redemption in the inner parts I came home yesterday after a very long uh, day of writing and uh, opened the door and uh, Libby was on the other side of it smiling. You know, and it's quite nice to come home to peace and to joy. And if that kind of thing is possible with any kind of consistency, it's a result of redemption in the inner parts. You don't fake that. Murder is a serious sin because do you remember who the first murderer was? First murderer in the Bible is Satan. God had told Adam and Eve, look, if you eat from that particular tree, you will die. You will surely die. It is going to happen. It's going to happen. And Satan came along and said, you'll not surely die. John eight forty four says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Murder is satanic. The whole point of the Bible is God rescuing people from death. And not just that, the whole point of the Bible is God rescuing rebellious, undeserving people from death. 
Satan brings death, but Jesus brings life. And this is why murder is so obviously evil. And this is why Jesus is so intense here in Matthew chapter 5. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see, murder comes from anger, a heart that is ruled by satanic desire and deception rather than Christ, grace, and the life-giving creation of God. When people come to us with interpersonal problems, we need to help them deal with the anger. John Piper wrote, despising your brother imperils your soul. You know, the cosmos started out formless and void. It was totally inhospitable to life. And in the midst of all that chaos, God carved out a garden where humanity could thrive and live. But Eden wasn't just a playpen for Adam and Eve. God made us in his image. And part of expressing that image of God is this creative work that we do under his authority, the creation being passed down to Adam and Eve, put under their dominion. Satan brought death to that place, but it was intended for life. It was supposed to be an expanding beauty where plants and animals and especially humanity could live in peace. And John Milton imagines the angel Raphael visiting Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. Raphael flies from heaven and he finds them, he finds them in this incredibly beautiful place. Uh, And it's made even more beautiful by their hospitality. So let me just read you just one little paragraph from Paradise Lost. It says, Their glittering tents Raphael passed and now is come into the blissful field through groves of myrrh and flowering orders, cassia, nard, and balm, a wilderness of sweets. For nature here flourished innocently as in her prime and played at will. Her virgin fancies pouring forth more sweet, wild above rule or act, enormous bliss. Him through the spice forest onward come, Adam discerned, as in the door he sat of his cool bower, while now the mounted sun shot down direct his fervid rays to warm earth's inmost womb, more warmth than Adam needs. And Eve within, due at her hour, prepared for dinner savory fruits of taste to please true appetite and not disrelish thirst of nectarous draughts between from milky stream, berry or grape to whom thus Adam called, Haste hither, Eve, and worth thy sight. Behold, eastward among those trees, what glorious shape comes this way moving? Seems another morn, risen on mid-noon, some great behest from heaven to us perhaps he brings and will vouchsafe this day to be our guest. But go with speed and what thy stores contain, bring forth and pour abundance, fit to honor and receive our heavenly stranger. And it goes on, it's this beautiful scene of how Adam and Eve receive Raphael and they lavish him with this incredible experience sitting right in the center of the garden and they they bring you know course after course of this beautiful food and they have this incredibly uh, beautiful conversation where Raphael is warning them about Satan you see before the fall Adam and Eve were responsible for a place of beauty and joy it was under their charge They were not simply to enjoy it, but they were to work and prune and expand it so that life-giving mission could be enjoyed by anybody who entered that place. Is that my effect in your life and vice versa? Is that what your home is like? God has created us to live 
and to spread that life through a chaotic cosmos, to carve out little places, whether it be a conversation or a home or a church or some place, even a, a business as a Christian business owner, to carve out a place that we've managed well enough so that when people enter and interact with us, that they are blessed with life and peace and joy. God has created us to live and to spread that life. And murder and anger and insults are the satanic opposite of what God is trying to do on this planet. We are called to be like him with a creative, life-giving mission. Not only explaining the gospel, using specific words to explain what it means to be reconciled to God through repentance and faith, but also living out the gospel and creating these places of beauty for others. And what does that look like? Let's say that you are living in your parents' house and sharing a room with a sibling right now. What can, you make, what can you do to make that room a place where your brother is blessed? When a church is filled with strangers, can you open your home? When disagreements explode between us, can we remain friends or do we need to start another church down the street here in Auburn? I, I think we have enough churches here in Auburn. When this present darkness tries to divide us and darken our inmost parts, will the love and the life of Jesus Christ make any difference? How do we join God in a creative life-giving mission here, now, in real life? Let me close with this from Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. God in heaven, as we consider the Ten Commandments and this apparently straightforward one, do not murder, I thank you for blowing the meaning of that into our awareness. Thank you for exposing this through the light of Christ so that we can see where murder comes from. I pray that you would redeem us in our inmost parts so that we would urgently make every effort to be at peace with one another and to create life all around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.